This message is brought to you by Mill City Church in Lowell, Massachusetts. For more information, please visit millcitychurch.net. Good morning, Mill City. Sean said he saw a lot of new faces this morning, and I'm excited to see those new faces too. Um, Obviously, we're a little thinned out today. Uh, There's a holiday on Monday, which I'm looking forward to. And then the semester ended, which means a lot of our student population is uh, home and doing other things uh, not in the Lowell area. And uh, meanwhile, we'll be preparing for a new batch of students to come to UML this fall. Um, Many of them are probably trying to figure out if for sure they want to come to UMass Lowell uh, for four years. And uh, it's an interesting time to compete for a spot in a university. I'm... uh, I'm sure many of you heard about the recent college scandal where, um, frankly, some extremely powerful and wealthy parents bribed the college admission process to fraudulently accept their children over other qualified candidates in prestigious universities. So even Yale, even uh, Stanford were named among the universities involved in this scandal. And one of those uh, fraudulently accepted students whose parents dropped $500,000 up front to bend admissions was quoted as saying this to their social media following. I don't know how much of school I'm going to attend, but I'm going to go and talk to my deans and everyone and hope that I can try to balance it all. They said in a comment about, quote, the whole college thing. But I do want the experience of, like, game days, partying, like, I don't really care about school, as you guys all know. And after this whole thing uh, had been exposed, this kid who initially was unaware of um, their parents' bribery is still a student at the university. And if you're like me this morning, when you initially heard that news, you were like, no way. Like, that is so ridiculously unfair. And it's true, it is. But at the same time, I think we all know deep down inside that there are many ridiculous and scandalous things that happen and just seem unfair. And without God's word to ground us, I'd submit to you that those crazy things can knock us down and may lead us to some really dark places. And that's why this morning I want to study Psalm 73 together. I want to uh, study it, and if you want, you can begin opening there in your Bibles, and we'll also flash the scripture up on our screens in a second. Um, But Psalm 73 is extremely frank about the apparent unfairness of life. Um, It's what youth in the room might call real talk, or that's super legit, or that's so extra. (laughs) Maybe not the last one. But really, this psalm is so epic in how real it is with us. Um, This is one of those passages where God shows us how intimately aware he is of our lives um, and what he plans to do about it. So if you need to hold the person next to you, Uh, Brace yourself, because we're about to read God's word. Psalm 73, verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. 
their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain, I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they're destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you, but for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. I love it. Isn't that good this morning? My goal this morning is, is to give us all an opportunity to, to be reminded of or maybe to see for the first time how good this word really is. And I'd like to do so by emphasizing three major truths from this psalm, three biblical uh, expectations uh, of life on this earth, on this earth for our, our hurt or for the haziness of the future um, and for the hope for our lives today. So let's do this together, okay? Number one, in this life, you'll see on your guides, in this life, there is pain. There's pain. <clears throat> and I know this is kind of a, a, kind of a low way to start, um, but I told you this psalm is real, right? I wasn't kidding. And the Bible teaches that uh, there is pain because of sin. We see that all throughout the Bible. You can go back and, and read that clearly, starting in Genesis 3. And I think from the psalm, we see this uh, in at least two ways. So first, there is pain caused by others. There's pain caused by others, or maybe even um, outside forces. This is the kind of pain that we can't help but naturally say, did I, did I really deserve this? Did I deserve it? And I, I think from uh, verses 2 all the way through basically verse 12, we, kinda, we, we, we get a sense of that. Like the writer of the psalm is just venting about some sort of prosperous and bitter and disrespectful God-mocking people that he clearly can't stand, but it's, it's more than them just being annoying. I think it's uh, obvious in verse 6, the language is not subtle. He says, therefore pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. And when I read pride is your necklace, I can almost, I can almost picture it uh, like some new like, newcomer hip-hop artist 
arriving to the scene, and just, he, he's trying to fit some sort of picture in his head of, of what he sh- should be. And so he goes out and like purchases a gold-plated, like diamond-encrusted clock necklace that says pride on it and wants to rock that in his music video. And I think we can all agree that pride, that, like, that doesn't look good. <laughs> it's not good. It says violence covers them. And that means these people don't mess around. Like, they'll cut you. They'll come for you. They don't play. In verse 8, they scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. In verse 11, they say, how can God know? We don't need God. We, we have our own way. It's, it's all I need, and it's, and it's all I know. And I mean... It's, it's no surprise if any of us who are living here in the 21st century, um, we hear people say stuff like this all the time. I used to say stuff like this all the time. How can God know, right? And knowledge is, is, is a gift from God, but banking everything we, uh, everything we are on the gift rather than the giver of the knowledge is a dangerous way to live. And we get a strong sense here that the effect of people like this who are prideful, who are control-hungry and testy, even God-ignoring, is hurt. These people hurt you. And this psalm speaks of oppression. So as an example, let me ask, do you know someone who was oppressive to you? Did they hurt you? Do you know people who scoffed and spoke with malice? and slandered you? Do you know people who lied to you, who just burned with hot tempers or tempted you, who tried to manipulate you, who neglected you, who delight in hurting your faith? How can God know, right? Did they hurt you? Behold, says the psalmist in verse 12, these are the wicked, and we've all shed tears at their hurtful hands. And the reality is God has seen each tear that's fallen, and he's not afraid to address it. This is real talk. God knows what's up, that there are real abusers and oppressors and egomaniacs out there, and there is also poverty and uh, hunger and depression, addiction, mental illnesses, physical disease, like a lot of great injustices. There are all sorts of them, and they cause pain. And we're all far more acquainted with this than we wish we were. And this has consequences, guys. Like, pain has an effect on us, in many cases leaving us scrambling, like chickens with our heads cut off. Like, it just causes great perplexity. We might even hurt ourselves trying to manage it. So in this life, there is pain caused by ourselves uh, also. You'll find that on your guide. There's pain caused by ourselves. I used, to, um, I used to play a lot of Pokemon growing up on my Game Boy Color. And uh, every Pokemon trainer's worst nightmare was when your Pokemon would get so confused that it would literally self-injure. <laughs> like, you remember? It'd be something like this. Zigzagoon is confused. Zigzagoon used headbutt. Dot, 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 dot. It hurt itself in its confusion. And you'd be like, no, why? How in the world do you headbutt yourself? 
zigzagoon. <laughs> but scripture is pointing us to the fact that when we're confused, oftentimes we can't see it. Or, in the, or even if we can, we don't know how to handle it. And it's why in verses uh, 2 and 3 of the passage, it says that the writer, he was stumbling around, slipping, falling into envy himself. Like he, couldn't, he couldn't make sense out of life anymore, and he was just becoming cynical and bitter. And it leads him to say in verse 4 that the wicked, they have no pangs until death. They, es- they escape pain, basically. And their bodies are fat and sleek, which... For any, any of our ketogenic dieters in the room, this is Old Testament Hebrew for they're very, very healthy. It's a different, different culture. But in verse 5, it says they're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. And it's so curious because aren't these some of the perceptions that we have of people when we go on social media? Like even people we're not fond of. Look at the family trips they go on and how they spend their holidays or how thoughtful their grandchildren are, how healthy their parents are, how adventurous their marriage seems, the time they have on their hands, the job promotions and the wealth that they're accumulating. And then we say, well, I, I, think, I, I think I'm all right. Like I'm, a, I'm an all right person, and I, my life doesn't, but my life doesn't look like what they're enjoying. Now, I, I may be a faithful servant, but sometimes it just seems like I just suffer for it. And that's not an exaggeration because it's in verse 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. I would have betrayed. That's, 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 when you say, this, this is so confusing and unstable and painful that I, I can't let people in on it because it would betray them. It's so dark that it would just bring them down. They can't handle it. And so instead, I'll just sit and just soak in my envy. The Psalms have something else to say about this. Psalm 32.3 says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Bones wasted away. Because when we bottle up our hurt and our sin, it's like battery acid to the soul. We become a shell of the person that God wants us to be. Yet there's safety in Christ not to hide our issues. Even our duplicity or our fakeness or our indifference, we can be real about it. There's forgiveness and healing when we confess to a trusted brother or sister and to God. They and God will still love us. You can even tell them, look, I I don't need you to have an answer right now, but I at least want you to know what's going on because I I don't want my bones to waste away. I don't want to slip. I think this is because the reality is that we were never meant to do this alone to go through life alone. We all need help to be faithful. And it's why the writer says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Yep, it is. It seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. 
God, you know, the creator of the universe, the inventor of stars, the breather of life, the lover of human souls, went to be with God. That's some great promise for us this morning, that in this life, in spite of great pain, yes, there is promise as well. There is promise. There are expectations that any one of us can have as we walk this earth, but these expectations laid out in this psalm, we need to have these as Christians. There is promise. In this psalm, we see promise in at least God's presence. There's promise in, God, there's promise in God's presence. As the writer uh, says, he, he says, I, I, was, I was over here just kind of per- perseverating and circling the corpse of my misery like a vulture, and then I went to be with God. It wasn't that God wasn't always there. It wasn't that. It was that our writer wasn't trusting that God was always there. But the minute his faith led him to remember God's promises and his promise to be present in all things, everything changes. I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned. Then I discerned their end, he says. And what end did our writer discern? Well, for one, he discerned the judgment of the wicked, that God is present to judge the wicked. In other words, God renders consequences for disobedience. So we don't need to go and seek revenge on people. God will take care of the wicked. In verse 18, he says, Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept utterly away by terrors. And it's true. Sometimes we see almost like a practical, immediate judgment, right? So someone is driving 130 miles an hour on their motorcycle into oncoming traffic. That foolishness probably leads to some serious consequences. And so in one sense, life is configured in such a way that there can be practical, severe, swift, swift consequences for our decisions. But I think that ultimately, the psalmist is pointing us to think bitter than, bigger than some sort of uh, temporal divine karma on earth. There's something much more pressing here. If you look at verse 27, he says, for behold, Those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. Yes, physical death is scary, but the psalmist here is pushing us to consider that God renders eternal spiritual consequences for everyone's wicked decisions as well. Death. And remember, earlier he said that the wicked, they they seemed fine. They seemed totally fine for a prolonged amount of time. And then it was at their end that they faced their ultimate judgment. Jesus himself said, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And Psalm 73 says, Those who are far from you shall perish. Okay, then, so then who are those who are, quote, far from you? Who are those who are, quote, unfaithful to you? And Jesus clarifies this for us again 
in the Gospel of John. Listen to the connection between unfaithfulness and wicked things and painful judgment. Jesus says in John 3, 18, whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. That's Jesus. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works be exposed. The unfaithful have done wicked things. And so then we must ask, who has not done a wicked thing in this room? Who is sinless here this morning? Even based on this psalm, God says pride is their necklace. And I say, do we see ourselves as better than anyone else? Or unchallengeable? Are any of us unteachable? Right? That's pride. Do any reject constructive criticism, especially in regard to the faith? It's, it's been said that a, a mature Christian can often be measured by their ability to receive and respond to criticism. Has pride been your necklace? Has it been, has it been mine? How about violence covers them as a garment? Do, do we use hurt as a manipulation technique, either putting others down or threatening our own well-being to get what we want? Or verse 8, they scoff and speak with malice. Do we demean people or defame them behind their backs? And we can't forget about verse 11. How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? We have to ask, are we in that at all? Are we among the people who say, God, I, I need you, and you're the only reason I, I can stand here before you today? And then we never pick up our Bibles we don't pray, we don't fast, don't fellowship, don't visit orphans and widows, don't serve, don't confess sin, ask for loving critique and forgiveness. And I'm not trying to indict you this morning and to come up with a list of sins that aren't characterizing you. Don't, don't go there. God doesn't want you to go there. But if you haven't had a chance to examine your heart, now is the time to do it. Now is a great time to do it. Are we in this passage? Are we functionally saying, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Because to depend on our knowledge, which the Bible says is tainted if we're not continually renewed by God's knowledge, is to say, that the world, is to, say to the world that God doesn't know best. And while I was prepping, I even asked myself, how can I say, God, you're the only thing I need and then on any given day, be more likely led by political podcasts and Google search and Netflix's tidying up with Marie Kondo. <laughs> That's serious. I'm serious. Then I am, then I am led by the God who led a nation of emaciated slaves through the Red Sea and well over 200 miles to the promised land, feeding them and guarding them and guiding them by pillars of fire and inflaming their souls with passion for his glory and yet we forsake lesser things. We forsake him for lesser things. How can God know? The very nature of our inherited sin is asking this question before every sin. How can God know? That's the very nature of our sin. 
And that's when I can nod my head and say like our psalmist this morning, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. There is promise that God will judge. That means wicked people who have hurt us will face consequences. But it also means that before God, I should face consequences as well. Because he's not judging me based on their performance. He's judging me based on his perfect performance. And there's a big gap there between me and him. And on that basis, I have no ground to stand on. I'm a goner. I'm done. And it doesn't excite me this morning to say that you are too. That on our own, we evaporate to dust like Lot's wife when imperfect man attempts to face God's judgment on his own merits. And that's why there is mind-blowing promise this morning in God's presence, not only to judge, but to save the sinner. His presence to save the sinner. We were all on one-way tickets to hell, Scripture tells us. to Basically, just rot in our pain and await judgment. And then Jesus arrived. Jesus, in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus, who lived the perfect life that God requires as the basis for knowing him. Jesus, who hung around with what society said was human debris. Jesus, who wept over the death of his friends and over the broken state of his city. He was never fake. Jesus was never faked, unlike us. Like he was authentically and entirely in love with God and in love with people, just as the Father loves Jesus and loves us. And he knew that the only way for the consequences of our sin to be paid for, because on our own they would have destroyed us, was to pay for them himself, to absorb the entirety of, uh, of penalty and judgment for our sin on his own body and soul, which killed him. It killed him because sin causes death. But he didn't stay dead. He didn't just pay for our sins. He rose from dead and defeated sin. Can you imagine? Can you imagine for a moment when that happened, just the laser-focused frenzy of worship that the angels burst into when the Son of God's heart began to beat again? Just Roaring with worship over God's power over sin and love for man. Jesus defeated death. And when we claim his perfect life record through faith, we defeat death too. And we can know God. There is promise in the presence of God to save the sinner, to save the believer. We heard from Jesus, just, it was just five minutes ago, talk about judgment Two verses before that, he famously says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is Jesus talking. He's judge and he's savior. And in him, God's judgment won't declare us wicked. It won't even declare us, you're kind of sort of all right, maybe. It declares us perfect before him. 
And so I wonder, do you, do you, do you or I need to hear that this morning? Because you know your jealous heart. You know your judgmental attitude or your lies or your sexual sin or your pride. You know your nature. And I, and I know mine. But God says, Santi, I don't, know, I don't know it anymore like that. It, se- it separated us, but it's been buried with Christ. All I see is my perfect, precious, pure, beautifully new son. And Christian, God does not look at you with disappointment and wonder if he made a mistake on you. He's sold on you, and he has been for an eternity. And as a result, we can say with the psalmist, for me, it is good to be near God. The Lord God is my refuge. (laughs) Wow. Praise God for salvation. And that salvation transforms our lives in amazing ways. There, There is promise in God's presence, but it doesn't stop there. In this life, lastly, there is purpose. There is purpose. And to set this up, let's look at verse 1. We're almost done here, guys, I promise. Verse 1 says, Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Pure in heart because we've been imbued with Christ's purity by faith and repentance. He says, God is good. He's good, and that's, that's where his promise leads to goodness, to love, to joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. God, he's not indecisive. He's not unknowable or bad. He's good. So our purpose leads to goodness and to glorifying God. And so we can have confidence that there is purpose even in our suffering. There is purpose for our suffering. Normally, we try to avoid suffering, uh, or we're embittered by it, or we play it off like it's not a big deal. But even in our psalm, we can see that it's through the suffering from pain of this life that our writer here is brought to an end of himself and to the beginning of God's promises. In verse 26, he says, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So for one thing, our physical, our emotional suffering may drive us to the Lord by his providence to see him as the only hope for our souls. But we see later in scripture, the apostle Paul builds on this idea, says that suffering is now much more than something that just leads us simply to God and to his doorstep, his front doorstep. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Paul says that we don't just endure our pain. We rejoice in it. Still maybe crying tears of hurt and sadness, but rejoicing, knowing that God does not waste this momentary affliction for the believer that it's all, every last drop of it, is leveraged to strengthen our faith, according to this verse, to conform us to God's image, to renew our hope, and to unveil to the world that the gospel is true. It has the power to save, made evident through the suffering. 
This radical truth is not true because we're strong people. It's true because, quote, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. It all points back to God, and it's all for our good. This is a supernatural recomposition of a human's reaction to pain. In Christ, suffering has been repurposed from deterioration to edification of the Christ follower. It's all been repurposed. There is purpose even for your suffering. Lastly, there is purpose for our breaths. There is purpose for our breaths. Think, when we see how good God's promises are, salvation and goodness, even in suffering, how can we not live for God with every single breath? In verse 25, the the psalmist says, God, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. He's saying, even if I die, even when I die, at least I know I had the supreme satisfaction of knowing you. And this is a reminder for us this morning that the purpose of the Christian life is not to go to heaven. The purpose of the Christian life is to know God and to make him known with every breath. Verse 28, but for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. If we have this incredible promise before us, this gift of salvation, this living hope, then our hearts should beat with God's heart, with the psalmist, to tell of all his works to the world. And there are so many that cannot know God because they do not know Christ which means they are facing a judgment that they simply cannot stand up to, just as I could not. God has designated us as the people of God to show them and to tell them that there is hope in this life. So to bring it maybe home to us on on any given normal day, in the morning, you and I, we can enjoy our news podcasts and our coffee. And, so, and, and if the morning is good for you, then, then take that time to read the word, to know God, and be more articulate in describing truths about him. At school, study hard. Allow your studies to cause you to marvel at how intricate the world God created is. Hang out with friends and play video games <laughs> or Pokemon. And also be intentional to find opportunities to share uh, with your classmates or doormates, even some, just even some of what God has done in your life. Not forcing something on them, but not neglecting the duty and the joy of telling them. And at work or in retirement, be a good employee or a good volunteer and grow respectably in your position. Excel in your skills and, and, and all the while demonstrate a gratitude for your job or a kindness towards people that causes them to say, what's different about you, man? And you and your genuine witness can say, here's a glimpse why. We can be deliberate with every breath to prepare ourselves and plant ourselves to be near God and to tell of all his works. And I know it may seem like a preoccupation, 
And this should be done joyfully and in freedom. I assure you, God is not concerned with an over-preoccupation for the name of Jesus being spread and for people to know him, for too many people to come to know him. In fact, God is pretty focused on telling his works. The, the angels are not singing right now, for instance, worthy is Sean to build a medical balloon <laughs> or worthy is Alicia to bake a cake. She bakes a great cake, though. Or worthy is Santi to write a song. The angels are singing on repeat right now, worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. It's not for no reason. It's even because God is good to us, as the psalm says. And so in the same breaths, the angels say, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and every language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign. Christian in the room, you know that the work of God is amazing in your life. So be, just be prepared to tell of it. And if, if, you don't, if you don't know Jesus this morning or truly know him, he loves you. And he, he wants to know you today. And if you're processing this and you have questions, there are people here who would love to walk alongside you and answer your questions. It could be a trusted friend or a mentor or a pastor. The reality is this morning that in this life there is pain, but in spite of it there is promise. And on that promise we can stake our lives on the unshakable rock of Christ in faith and tell the world that even through our suffering, even in death, we're sure of the love of God and trust his plan. And we're sure that he loves the world and wants them to know him too. So let's pray. God, Father, you're so good. You're such a great creator and God and Father to us. And Lord, we are a broken and needy people. We need you. We can't stand up on our own. And so I simply ask that you would save us exactly as you promised in your word, that you would assure us and transform our lives, that every breath would have purpose, and that you might use us to save even one person in our lives. Only you can accomplish this work. May you be glorified. Amen.